Welcome to the party, pal. The, the Michael Dukes Show. The greed and the entitlement is astounding to me. What more could you want from a low-budget radio program? This is a dumpster fire. That was just BS. It is time to get a new perspective. We know just what you need, and we've got just the cure. Open wide and prepare for a steaming hot cup of freedom. I just don't fathom it. The Michael Dukes Show, streaming live across the world. Oh, live across the world on the internet at MichaelDukesShow.com and across the state of Alaska on this, your favorite radio station and or translator. Good morning and welcome to the program. Uh, I mean, this is the uh, this is the winter that will never, ever, ever end. I mean, seriously, right? I mean, this is the... <laughs> You got more snow over the weekend here in the Matsu. I know there's supposed to be more snow in Fairbanks, probably more snow down on the peninsula and still cold. And I'm just, I mean, please, I could, I'm ready. I'm just, I'm just ready for another oof. Just ready for some green stuff, a little warmth, a little nice uh, feel-good stuff. This is the this is the winter of our discontent, unfortunately, and here we are, ready ready to go. But we'll make it through. We'll make it through. I have faith in uh, I have faith in you. I have faith in you that you're going to help make it through here this morning. Uh, Monday morning, and we are ready to go. A uh, bit of an interesting show lined up for you today here. In hour one, we're going to continue our discussions on education uh, this morning with our guest, uh, Sarah Montalbano, who is the education policy analyst for the Alaska Policy Forum. She's going to be joining us this morning to talk uh, more about what's going on uh, in the education world. We'll talk about that $175 million uh, increase outside the BSA. Uh, and uh, also, uh, we're t- going to talk a little bit about COVID funds uh, because there's been a lots of discussion about how, well, that the it's a crisis, right? I mean, it's a crisis at every level. That's what they say. It's uh, you know we're we're gonna it's gonna fail again. That seems to be an ongoing an ongoing bit with many school districts that if they don't get the help that they're requesting, that uh, this is going to be. A disastrous year, or next year will be a disastrous year, or um, it's going to be bad. You know, no matter what, no matter what's going on, uh, and unfortunately, um, <clears throat> that uh, that well, I guess fortunately, it doesn't always seem to be the case. Uh, but we've been hearing some rumblings about. Well, what about all the monies from the uh, from COVID? That have been going around uh, millions, millions of dollars still sitting in accounts for various schools around the state. Some have zero. Uh, I understand Fairbanks has expended all of their funds, but there are others that uh, still have uh, tens of millions of dollars in the bank. And the question is, uh, why aren't we using that if there are fiscal holes that we need to plug? Uh, why aren't we using that instead of uh of coming back in a state that is currently in a fiscal crisis. So, I mean, that's uh, that's going to be part of our discussions this morning with Sarah Montalbano. Um, 
it's going to be um, it's going to be a good discussion. Always enjoy talking to uh, always enjoy talking to Sarah. Then an hour or two, I thought we would change it up just a little bit. Um, and uh, I I quite honestly have been uh, thinking about this, trying to get this put together for a while. Uh, we're going to be talking with author James Bartlett about his book uh, called The Alaska Blonde. Um, and this is a true crime story that took place uh, almost uh, uh, 70 years ago. Uh, in Fairbanks, and uh, it uh, it it's it's a scandal that I mean it hit everything from Newsweek to Life to pulp detective magazines uh, and everything else. James Bartlett, who's a journalist, uh, has uh, been working on the story for several years and has uncovered a lot of new evidence, including uh, some memoirs and reexamining the FBI files and everything else. It's a true crime story from uh, from Alaska. And I thought that this, um, I think this is a, it's going to be a fun story. Uh, it's going to be a fun uh, discussion, especially looking back at the, uh, at the life of my old hometown there. Um, so he's going to be joining us in hour two and we'll, uh, we'll talk with him about it and uh, we'll see, we'll, we'll see what, uh, we'll see what comes of that. So it should be an interesting, should be an interesting discussion uh, with, uh, James Bartlett. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, I'm, I don't know, it's something different, something different, right? I'm looking, I'm looking for that or something a little bit different than just the standard, uh, political fair that we seem to be locked into as of late. So, um, all right. Uh, so what else, uh, what else we got going on? Um, stories, I got, we, we got the stories. Uh, speaking of um, education and, uh, you know, all the school districts, you know, doom and gloom kind of thing, maybe, just maybe, one, um, one, air, one, one city in the state gets it. I, I don't know. Maybe. Possibly. Uh, Must Read Alaska is reporting that the Kenai City Council voted uh, on a resolution that would have supported an increase in the funding formula for school districts around the state, but they voted it down. Resolution was offered by Council Member Henry uh, uh, Knackstead, or Knackstead, in response to an estimated $13 million budget deficit for the coming year. Um, the legislature, uh, obviously unlikely to pass an increase in the formula, the BSA, because, you know, the state's broke too. Uh, instead, the House is proposing that one-time allocation, the $175 million that we've talked about, that would be outside the BSA uh, and adding more monies to schools without committing itself in the future to a formula that it might not be able to afford. That's why it's one-time funding. The Soldotna City Council and the Kenai Peninsula Borough have both passed resolutions in support of a higher amount of a formula spending. But after a spirited debate in which the, oppon uh, the opponents of the resolution pointed out that every year there are dire predictions of funding shortfalls and that the BSA increase comes with no accountability, I mean, they spend it, but what, you know, what do you get for the increase in spending? Are we going to get better results? There's, no, there's nothing tied to it. Uh, the majority of the council in the long run uh, voted to postpone the item indefinitely. 
um, which I think is an interesting, uh, I think that's interesting. I think it's an interesting take on what's going on there. So good for them. Um, they, but I, I think the most important, I think the most important things here is understanding that every year there are dire production, uh, predictions of funding shortfalls. Uh, we've heard that for years that uh, if we don't get our fair share from the state, if we don't get in a little extra kiss, if we don't get uh, some extra kick, that the schools are going to, I don't know, the implication is always that there'll be some kind of meltdown, some kind of meltdown in the city uh, or in the in the school districts in these cases for that to go on. So I guess uh, my hat's off to the Kenai City Council for Deciding to uh, try and do what they can do. Uh, it didn't stop Soldatna or or uh, the KPB from uh, resolving to ask for more money. But, you know, there you go. There you go. All right. Well, after the big discussion that we had last week uh, about the Wednesday walkout of the House minority, um, we really had no idea what was going to be happening. We had talked with uh, uh, Representative Kevin McCabe, uh, and he described the actions of the of the day and kind of the bizarro world that we were living in and what was happening. Um, and he, um, he wasn't sure what was going to take place the next morning, although Kathy Tilton had called a recess to basically give everybody a chance to cool off. And that apparently worked. The Alaska Beacon reported that on Thursday, the attitude in the House of Representatives was 180 degrees opposite from what it was on Wednesday. Um, afterward, the House Minority Leader Calvin Schrege pledged a reset would take place on Thursday morning. And the prediction, uh, according to James Brooks, said that uh, that held true, even as lawmakers continued to hold to separate uh, positions. Um, they want to, uh, they want to move past it. And it looks like they may actually have a vote on the final draft version of the Alaska state operating budget as early as sometime this morning. Now that doesn't mean that it's, that doesn't mean that it's all over. Um, the good news, I guess, uh, we could say is that, uh, the funding mechanism, for the $175 million in temporary funding increase for the public schools is still uh, contingent upon that successful vote to spend money from the CBR. Um, that's, uh, it, I mean, it's a minor piece of good news because it still means that they are uh, sweeping money back out of the CBR and, uh, you know, basically uh, playing that game of whack-a-mole uh, that they have done every year for the last, I don't know how many years. Uh, with the sweep and the reverse sweep coming back in. Uh, the budget still contains a deficit that approaches about $600 million for the coming year. So still still in the hole. And we're still in the hole for this year for about $400 million, uh, $300-something million on top of it. So almost a billion dollars by the time it's all said and done for these last for this year, current year that we're in, that we're ending in right now, because we got what, May and June, and that's it. So April, May, June, last three months of the year, still got a major deficit there and still have $600 million in uh, next fiscal year. 
Uh, now, but this doesn't. This isn't the last word. The House could vote the budget out and send it over to the Senate. But the Senate could uh, take a completely uh, another tact. They've yet to unveil their proposal for the operating budget. And uh, once they do and get it passed, and it seems like they're obviously a little more, um, uh, they're a little bit more in line with the House minority instead of the majority. But uh, once they unveil their plan and uh, they sit down, it'll go to what they call the conference committee. And then uh, various members of the Senate and the House will duke it out and uh, and figure it out on this conference committee and come up with a finalized combined bill. Um, well, one of the things uh, one of the things that I heard this weekend is that uh, um, and it, it is actually tweeted by the Alaska landmine. Uh, it says, "Here's what Rep. Edgmond, who is in the majority." He's one of the independent members who's kind of been, he's played all sides of the fence over the years. But it says, here's what Rep. Edgman seems to be orchestrating with his Senate counterparts. The House sends the budget to the Senate. They hold it and other appropriations bills until the very end. The Senate sends back a bill stuffed with operating capital and uh, supplement uh, budgets. It will have a $200 million increase in education funding, a $1,700 dividend, a $300 million capital budget, and most importantly, not require a CBR draw. So this is what uh, – that that seems to be the analysis from uh, Jeff Landfie- uh, Landfield at the uh, landmine. We'll see if that actually plays out that way. Uh, but it's not unheard of to use time compression as a weapon where they hold on to it to the very last minute. And then force it down to say, well, if you don't vote for this, then we shut the government down because it's we just have no more time. Even though we've spun our wheels for weeks, we'll have to see what happens. But um, if the minority or if the majority in the House gets the budget out pretty quick here, that leaves a lot of time for the Senate. Uh, they, they'll have to burn a lot of daylight. We'll see. We'll see what happens, though. We'll be watching that and talking about that as we go along. All right, well, here we are. We are up against, uh, we're up against it. We got uh, more coming up. And Sarah Montalbano, I just like saying that, uh, is our guest. Uh, she's going to be, uh, she's going to be joining us here in just a minute. I see she's in the green room. Her happy, smiling face is all ready to go. And we're going to talk edumacation. That's not a real word, but I made it up and it sounds good. So we're going to use that one here in a minute. Education with Sarah Montavano from the Alaska Policy Forum. We will continue in just a moment. Don't go anywhere. The Michael Duke Show. Common sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Running on 100% pure beard power. Oh, also some coffee. We dip our beard in coffee. Ha, <laughs> nice beard. The Michael Duke Show. Okay. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, man. Um, What you guys got here this morning? Anything good? Let me say good morning, good morning, good morning. It's a lot of good mornings. 
Uh, so nobody, no, don't kick the dog. Not a good idea. Um, I hope the keen eye doesn't give up. Yeah, me too. Schools need to be pressured into administrative reform. I couldn't agree more. The schools have no business getting into the CBR, says uh, Jeannie. Uh, the schools wouldn't be getting into the CBR. It's not how it, but don't we all keep savings for an emergency? Isn't every school district telling us that they are in an emergency situation? Yeah, that's right, Kevin. That's what I was saying. Hundred, just millions and millions of dollars. Um, Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Donnie. Uh, Donna. Donnie. Good morning, Donnie. Good morning, Donna uh, in D.C. Good to see you. Uh, thanks for coming in. Um, how is the weather? Is it lunchtime yet? No. Although I'm a little hungry. I could, I could, I could eat. I could definitely eat something. I don't know what. Uh, I look like the big boy. I got that little thing going on today that I don't know what it is, but I look like the statue of that big boy. Give me a big burger and hold it out there. And that's what I look like. <sighs> the weekend was way too short. Let me just put that out there. Let me just throw that out there for you for nothing. Way too short. Uh, but luckily, my guest never sleeps. She never sleeps. She works all weekend. She doesn't do anything else. Uh, and I'm 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 lucky for me because she agreed to come on the program and uh, and talk with us. And here she is, the one, the only, Sarah Montalbano from Ale. Wait, there we go. Alaska Policy Forum. Hello there, young lady. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing well, and I actually had some chance to relax this weekend. Did you really? So did you did what? not work the whole time? <laughs> That's great. That's great. I watched way too much television this weekend. I <laughs> me too. I got I got onto a kick, and the next thing I know, I had consumed every episode of Star Trek: Strange Worlds, uh, the new the new old prequel, whatever. I was like, oh, I'll watch this, and I was like, wow, that was how many episodes was that? Got to go to bed. Uh, so anyway, it was just, you know, one of those things where you just kind of turn your mind to idle and just kind of you need that recharge a little bit sometimes where I'm not thinking about all the pains of the world. Um, all right. So we're ready to dive into this and uh, and talk a little bit about this. Uh, we've got the hundred and seventy five million dollar one time increase coming. Uh, well, for right now, it could be more, could be 200 million, could be, I mean, who knows what they're going to dream up in the long run, but I had to laugh. I don't know if you were listening to the program here a few minutes ago, talking about the Kenai city council voting against this. Uh, they voted against a resolution to ask for more funding and they cited Hmm. two of the reasons that they said, um, they said, uh, uh, they said, uh, Opponents pointed out that every year there are dire predictions of funding shortfalls. So the sky is falling every year. Oh, it's going to be bad. And that the BSA increase comes with no accountability. And so they voted to postpone this resolution indefinitely. Uh, they basically killed it. And uh, I thought that was kind of interesting because you're, I mean, I remember being on the assembly and hearing similar thing. This is like nine years ago when I was on the borough assembly in Fairbanks. <laughs> That, oh, you know, if we just if we don't get that state funding, we're just it's going to collapse in on itself. And we're going to. And of course, this is after we discovered that they had some emergency funds and things. We made them create a building maintenance facility fund because they were we got hundreds of millions of dollars in unfunded uh, deferred maintenance. And I'm like, but you're sitting on all these accounts. Why aren't we? So uh, anyway, it should be a. it should be a, a real good discussion uh, for today, and I'm looking forward to it. So anyway, I hope you had a great weekend. 
Hope you had a I good did. Time. Yeah. Good. Good. Anything good? What were you watching? I'm just curious. Oh, mostly uh, early seasons of King of the Hill. Would you believe it? Uh, you know, I haven't watched that much. So, <laughs> dang it, Bobby! Dang it! Yeah. Uh, all right, I'll tell you what. <laughs> I tell, I tell you what. My my kids watch that, and they were just they quoting it to each other all the time. Uh, anyway, uh, all right, here we go. We're jumping back into it. The Michael Duke Show, common sense, liberty based, free thinking radio. Like it, share, like it, follow, subscribe on YouTube, do all the stuff that we're supposed to do. Let's get jiggy with it. I mean, that's not a real thing. But. Okay, welcome back to the program. It is the Michael Duke Show. It's Monday morning. Everybody's bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, right? Uh, we're ready to go and uh, and sit down and talk about some serious stuff. Education is in the mix. And uh, bringing us uh, up to speed on this is one of our favorite people talking about education, and that is Sarah Montalbano, who is the Education Policy Analyst for the Alaska Policy Forum. That's a mouthful. We should just call her the education chick. I mean, that would be better than, <laughs> although, uh, is that sexist? I don't even know anymore. Uh, anyway, Sarah Montalbano joins us this morning to talk education. Uh, hello, my friend. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing quite well. How about yourself? You know, there's no complaints, no complaints. Um, so I ask you to come on the program to talk a little bit about a couple different things. Um, and uh, number one, I wanted to talk about this $175 million one-time piece of funding. Uh, some of the mechanics of it, you know, you know, what does it mean that it's not part of the formula and it's outside and everything, but also about the accountability aspect, which I know you and I have talked about in the past before, because that seems to be something that's uh, severely missing from a lot of the things that we talk about. And then the second thing I want to talk about is this, um, where's the money? Uh, what I mean by that is we got a lot of COVID funds in the state, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in COVID funds, and a lot of it went specifically to the schools because, well, the schools were all shut down, right? And they needed to do things like remote learning and all these other kind of stuff. And so there were millions and millions and millions of dollars that were pumped in there. And now I'm hearing about school districts that are sitting on pretty good-sized reserves of money from COVID. Some apparently have spent it all. Some have not. Some are still sitting on uh, quite a golden goose egg. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about that uh, as well. But let's get started on the increase. So um, $175 million, which I find it interesting that they break it down as a dollar figure. They say, well, it's a 600 and something dollar per BSA increase, but it's not inside the BSA, right? I mean, this is outside mm -hmm. of the base student allocation. This is a one-time funding because they don't want to be committed to it for the future. Am I, you know, wrap, you know, break this out for us here a little bit here. Give us, give us your thoughts on it as you look at it. That seems to be my understanding of it. I must be honest, I am not completely up to date on the news about this, but I did see that the um, $175 million had uh, passed through uh, as being uh, discussed. One-time funding makes a lot of sense in some uh, areas. Uh, this 
when we break it down into a per student BSA, we have to remember that all of these figures are fungible. So some student might get zero dollars of benefit and the others might get more. Uh, that's just an average uh, figure. So that that is the only thing I, I would really note about this um, is that this is you know, a large sum of money, but it makes us have this conversation again next year, uh, which may or may not be a good thing, depending uh, on how you think about it. Uh, but it does make us have these these conversations. Um, and it it requires us to think about fiscal uh, sustainability again, uh, instead of because we've we've done these one time increases before uh, that you know, all of these different things. I think last time I was on your program, we discussed all of the things that pile on on top of the formula. And those are significant and shouldn't be ignored. So if this is one uh, way to think about this um, increase in funding, then this is perhaps something to consider. Well, I mean, because, again, that's part of the problem, um, you know, is that uh, we're already looking at it's not just although many Alaskans probably who aren't as well versed in what's happening will read the newspaper and go, oh, of course, we need to fund education that this must be in their mind the bsa must be the only funding that the kids are getting instead of Mm -hmm. it's just a factor and it's not just a per pupil there's also multipliers there's also this there's also that i keep going back to the whole anchorage school district getting funding for seventy thousand plus kids when they only have forty four thousand kind of thing um but the uh, the bottom line here is that this is one time because they can't decide on a new formula. They can't. They haven't been able to bring it out. Uh, even though many people have said this is what we need to do, we need to break out. We need to break down the formulas, and take a look at them. We need to see where the money's going inside the formula. Is it going into the classroom, or is it going towards administrative and overhead costs? And what are the, you know, what is the overall per pupil cost in the long run? And you've had a lot of articles out recently talking about all of those different factors showing that uh, just because you give a dollar to education doesn't mean that it actually is going to the ultimate in-classroom teaching of the student. Absolutely. And that's one of the things we discussed last time as well. There are these multipliers to the formula that increase the BSA. There are so many things on top of the school funding formula as well. And what we have seen is that increases in funding historically have not improved outcomes. Since 2003, we've lost almost a year on the National Assessment of Educational Progress. Um, We need to think about the way these incentives are lining up in the school funding formula. Are they incentivizing teachers to do the best work that helps students in the classroom? Um, And, you know, having this conversation this year, next year, it can be a long process, but it's one worth having. And of course, uh, you know, one of the things that we saw is that that became this became a major campaign issue in this last go around is that the school funding, we could see the handwriting on the wall was going to be one of the things that was just, uh, you know, ultimately important. And we were talking about increases in the. $1,300 per student range for the BSA. This does not hit into that. This is only about 600 and change uh, uh, along the lines, but it is, uh, it's a, it's still a significant amount of money. And again, there is no, um, there is no linkage with the assessment or the outcome of the students. And as you point out, our, our educational, our scholastic achievement continues 
to decline, even though, I mean, we spend what? We are one of the highest states, right, on a per student spend for that? Yes, we are. And the census puts us in 2020 at $18,313 per student. I've cited that a lot. You can probably tell. Uh, but that is before, you know, COVID relief funds and things like that. And I know we'll be talking about that, too. But that is also millions of dollars the districts are sitting on and may not be using wisely. And, uh, you know, accordingly, you would think that more money equals better outcomes. But that is the assumption. <laughs> I mean, that's not only the assumption, that is the battle cry from those who are advocating for more education spending. If only we had more money, we could do better. But at the same time, not including any kind of, like I said, linkage between achievement, scholastic achievement and the thing um, is, is, I think, is a huge mistake. Now, other states have started to do that. They have started to put those um They've started to put that linkage in to say you receive, you know, X amount until you hit certain milestones and then you receive more. And that is some of the newer things that we're seeing across the country. This is not uniquely an Alaskan issue, I think, but we're starting to see this across the country now. Yes, we are. And one of the things I like, Tennessee has a particularly interesting school funding formula. And what they've done is they've created an outcomes-based bonus to these formulas. So you get a certain amount per student. Uh, that is proficient in third grade English language arts, uh, things like that, that are, you know, really crucial for later grades, uh, eighth grade math, you're going into high school math, uh, calculus, things like that. Are you prepared? Uh, so they are able to incentivize outcomes without penalizing any districts that have poor outcomes, because you can imagine if you're taking away funding from schools that aren't doing well, uh, that's, that's obviously not a good thing. But having that financial incentive really does make districts perform better. And they've seen good results from that. Uh, Florida as well incentivizes uh, passing scores on the advanced placement AP exams. Uh, and they have the second highest rate of AP pass uh, in, in the nation. So these are just a few examples of how outcomes uh, can be incentivized in these formulas. As an analyst, uh, especially, I mean, I know probably numbers are one of your favorite things, um, but uh, when you see this and you see some of the resistance uh, from folks who just say, well, you can't put a number on success or you can't. I mean, you hear some crazy stuff when people talk about this. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, of course, the moniker of if you're asking for some kind of uh, if you're for some kind of accountability, some kind of linkage that. You just don't want to fund children, right? I mean, this is the this is the immediate need. You're, well, you just don't like education. Then that's not what I said. I said we want to get you know we want to get good results for our money. I'm not saying we shouldn't fund it. I'm saying we should get. Re but this is kind of the reaction. Uh, what what are your thoughts as you look as as kind of a numbers person? What do you think when you look at that and see those kind of arguments? It's interesting you asked me that. I think that there are so many ways in which schools are built to serve the interests of the adults in the building. Children need to be the focus of this. And I think the one thing we can all agree on is that we want our ch children to be as prepared as possible for this world that they are about to go into once they've graduated. Um, and it, it seems to me that it is almost stating the obvious. Well, of course I care about children. I would not be in this field if I did not care about getting these things. My issue is that 
uh, we're not delivering. We are not actually creating these outcomes for students. And there's a certain point where more money isn't going to help until we change our approach, until we focus this funding to actually get the outcomes we're looking for. Because af after a certain point, uh, you know, we're by some rankings, we're sixth in the nation for our per people funding. Um, you know, we are always up there. We are always at the bottom of the NAEP rankings. Uh, so I see such an obvious problem here uh, that we have tried to increase money before and it has not worked. So we need to be thinking innovatively about how to make these increases pay off for students. I'm reminded of Einstein's old quote, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over. And that seems to be what we're asked, not changing the way we're doing things, not changing mm -hmm. the methodology, but just saying, you know, it's throughput. If we just put more through, it'll be better in the end. You know, if we just put more money into it, it'll be better in the end. And that, unfortunately, is not, I mean, it's just not the case. I mean, it is the definition of insanity. And there are many other ways that you and I have talked about to try and uh, make that money go further. And whether that's a decrease in overhead and administrative costs, uh, we've talked about the consolidation of, you know, many different, we get all these different school districts, all with duplicative efforts of administrators and overheads and secretaries and vice, you know, whatever, and administrate all that stuff um, or, or anything else. And yet none of those things seem to be an attractive option for most of these people. And I think it goes back to what you just said, that this is built to serve the adults in the room rather than necessarily focusing on the kids. Absolutely. And I, I, I really have high hopes because this pandemic jolted a lot of parents out of just the acceptance of public schools as the default and as the best way to educate their kids. And I, I really do have high hopes that we see more innovative education solutions because students need these options now. Uh, they cannot afford to wait until some nebulous time when this funding has kicked in and now our public schools are all better because we've gotten more money. Um, I, it is not to say that funding couldn't be increased and could be made to do well, uh, but like you said, we need to be thinking about accountability for outcomes too, uh, that we cannot have these in conversations about spending without thinking about the outcomes that they are getting us. No, I mean, that's, that's no business would do that. Quality of product would Absolutely. be would be paramount at the end, uh, even as you talk about investment and and return and all that kind of stuff but the quality of the product must remain paramount otherwise i guess this is what happens when you have a, a monopoly uh on everything and this that's what this is is this is a state-run monopoly on education um with dollars that are taken from us and you know we've got to we've got to let our voice be heard on this sarah montalbano is our guest uh we're going to continue here in just a moment and we're going to talk with her not only about the COVID funds uh, that are at the various schools, but also the uh, Alaska Policy Forum has got a big event this week. So we wanted to give her a chance to talk about that as well. So we're going to continue in just a moment. Sarah Montalbano, our guest, The Michael Duke Show. Common Sense, Liberty Based, Free Thinking Radio. Back with more after this.
listened to by more staffers in Juno than any other show. Because their bosses told them to. And after what they just heard, oh man, they're gonna be pissed. You're a bad, bad man. The Michael Duke Show. You can smile. It's fine. <laughs> I'm doing well. I was I looking at this Reason article that someone linked. Oh, yeah. It's no. very interesting. Yeah. Uh, Reason has been doing a lot of good work recently on uh, some of the education things. Um, and uh, I don't know who writes this one, but uh, uh, I know Corey DeAngelis. We've had him on the program several times talking about this since the pandemic began. And uh, they've got a real good handle, I think, on a lot of the things that are going on uh, uh, as well over there. Uh, I mean, this is frustrating uh, for those of us who've been arguing for it, like I said, because anytime we start talking about, um, OK, we'll 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 consider your education increase. But we also want to look at, you know, maybe getting a little bit better of a deal on it. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why do you hate children? That was <laughs> not what I said. You know, that was not what I said. But. That seems to be the the case now. You're, um, you know, you're you're a lot closer to your school years than I am, right? Um, <laughs> and so when you look back at this and you say things like, "It seems like they're focusing on uh, the needs of the adults versus the needs of the kids." Um, I mean, you've seen some of this, and you've you've you dove down into some of the numbers on this and talked about this. The administrative, I mean, there are certain school districts in this state that have got two or three administrative overhead people to teachers. I mean, in smaller districts, it's like, how many counselors or secretaries do you need compared to the number of teachers in the classroom? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've looked at this. My my school years, I really loved. Public school served me really well. Uh, and that's that's one of the things that feels odd about this profession to me is that I am not one of these people who – was homeschooled and now is a champion for school choice. I just saw so many of my friends not get what they need from schools. Uh, and that, that was just really, really heartbreaking to see like these outcomes are not, not happening for a lot of kids. Um, and, and that's, that's one of the reasons I, I like talking about this and seeing the numbers because the numbers really paint the picture. Yeah, no. And again, having your, it's like you said, I, and I, I'm glad you said that because, you know, we do see that sometimes from some of these talking heads and, and people in education, mm -hmm. especially in the choice arena, where they're like, well, of course you want choice. You came from a, a homeschool environment and you want it. Yeah. And Sarah's like, no, no, I was down there brick and mortar with the stoners out back. She wasn't with the stoners out back. But you know what <laughs> I, I mean? I was not. <laughs> but you know what I mean? She was there. She saw the public school. She's a, she's a product of it. And yet she still goes, maybe we should... And, you know, we all saw that. I think if we all look back at our educational, uh, even uh, going back into the Wayback Machine for me uh, mm -hmm. and remembering some of those kids who just they just didn't get it. They just didn't you know, they needed that extra help. They knew all those mm -hmm. things. It's a it's a it's a tough situation. And if we don't have some kind of accountability, then I guess we'll just be right back here in another two years asking for more, right? Because that last round of funding wasn't just wasn't enough at that point. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason I'm not a politician is I don't like having all of these difficult, you know, debates and compromises in the legislature. But, you know, one time funding is something that could plug the gap for now, but we will be talking about it next time. Uh, if if it's not dealt with. Um, and then this is, first of all, not 
an issue specific to Alaska districts around the country are facing this because in, in no small part, uh, COVID relief funding allowed them to kick the can down the road a little bit. Uh, and they're plugging up their labor costs with this and they're not thinking about their, you know, long-term declines in enrollment too. So <laughs> we're, uh, we're, we're looking at you, Anchorage School District. Uh, yeah, you know, it's not unique. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not. And 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 that's what I mean. Again, I'm you know not a brain surgeon, nor do I play one on TV. <laughs> but I'm just thinking that if you take one-time funding and use it to pay for ongoing, reoccurring costs, you're setting yourself up for a bit of failure there. Uh, it mm -hmm. just seems like that is uh, that seems like that's a little bit foolhardy. It does. Yeah. And we've been talking about this since these relief funds came out, uh, that it is risky to put recurring uh, recurring costs on this one-time funding. Uh, and I think that's exactly what we're seeing uh, in Alaska and nationwide, uh, is just we, we've districts have come to this fiscal cliff uh, and the money's running out in 2024. Yeah. So they've got to start thinking about uh, the choices they, they need to make now. Um, yeah. That's exactly what we're seeing. And nationally, I mean, the money could be running out soon. I mean, you know, with everything that's going on nationally from this discussion on brick and breadbasket currencies to everything else, plus the fiscal cliff and all that, the money just could be flat running out. It's not just, you mm -hmm. know, it could be it could be a tough situation. We best get a handle on it now, right? I mean, that's the thing. Um, all right. Um that tells us we're about ready to jump back into it. Sarah Montalbano is our guest. We're going to talk a little bit first about their event, and then we'll move on to uh, and then we'll move on to discussions of uh, uh, of uh, uh, the COVID monies. That's what it was. I I know what I'm talking about. Back with more <laughs> of the Michael Duke Show, Common Sense, Liberty Based, Free Thinking Radio. Now. The Michael Duke Show. Seriously humorous with a pinch of intellect. <laughs> pinch of intellect. Sorry. That is humorous. Here's Michael Dukes. I mean, it's a pinch. Is that an actual finite? Is that a mount? Is that really a a measurement? It's a measurement. It is a measurement? I've heard okay. That. It's a pinch. No more. No less. Just a pinch. Just to sweeten it up. Sarah Montalbano is our guest, uh, senior uh, uh, educa I'm sorry, education policy analyst with the Alaska Policy Forum. Uh, and we're talking about uh, education and uh, the, the base student allocation. We're going to talk about COVID funds. But before we get to that, we're going to talk a little bit about a big event that they've got coming up this Thursday. It's a webinar. Uh, Sarah, tell us, uh, tell us what AF, uh, APF is, uh, is doing here uh, for the public and, and everything else on Thursday. Yeah, I hope all of you join me uh, Thursday, first of all, time and date. It's Thursday, April 13th, 7 p.m. Alaska time. So hopefully those of you working during the day can join us. Um, we are going to meet the attorneys from the Institute for Justice who are defending Alaska's Correspondent School Allotment Program. And so a quick background in January 2023, a lawsuit was filed challenging this program um, and some concerned parents uh, with the help of this a public interest law firm, Institute for Justice, intervened to defend it. Um, so we've obviously heard from some parents who are concerned about the future of the program. Um, and we wanted to set up this opportunity um, to sit down with the attorneys and ask your questions, 
get your presentation uh, about the frequently asked questions. So the first half will be these uh, frequently asked questions we've heard from parents so far. Uh, and also we encourage you to bring your own questions for the uh, Q&A portion uh, to ask the attorneys about the case. I'm happy to go in a little more detail. I'm obviously not a lawyer, so I can't really comment on the intricacies of the case. But what I know is that uh, hundreds of families in Alaska are benefiting from the correspondence pro program. And this lawsuit uh, is is threatening that. So we want you to join us. Uh, I have the registration link if you would like it. Um, and I believe Michael already shared it on uh, his page. So follow yep. down, down into that description, get the registration link. And please, I really hope to see you. I'll be the moderator. Yeah. So you can hear more from me. <laughs> well, yeah. And you're welcome to post the link in the chat room here if you like uh, with this. Uh, the genesis of this whole uh, thing came from, in part, um, the, uh, uh, the, the circumstance of certain families in Anchorage utilizing portions of that uh, of that funding to do uh, things that were kind of out of the norm uh, for various um, for various uh, 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 schools and classes and things like that. But this doesn't just affect that one school. This just doesn't affect just those, those one set of families that were doing something because we had um, and I'm, I'm sorry, it's the attorney general's wife and I've totally forgotten her name here. Uh, she actually came on the program and talked to us about what they were doing with this and how they were utilizing these funds and how anybody could do this. And it would gave them basically a, a, an opportunity to have some school choice. Uh, mm -hmm. That's now been challenged. But it's not just those actions. This has ramifications on like all my kids have been homeschooled. All my kids have been homeschooled. We've done it through IDEA. We were one of the first, I don't know, 15 or 20 families that joined IDEA back in the day. Uh, and we utilize it would threaten that as well. So this is not just one action on one area or one school. This could have ramifications on, um, you know, uh, school reimbursement for um, for distance education across the whole state. Indeed, this is my understanding as well as that this is challenging the whole program in a broad sense. Um, so this this affects, you know, all of the families that are in CSAP, who are thinking about CSAP, um, who who might want to do it in future school years. I mean, this was enacted by the legislature in 2014, and we haven't had a problem for it uh, up until now. So please bring your questions uh, to this webinar. Wonderful. You've posted the link. Just click that, register, uh, and I'll see you on Thursday. All right. And Jess, Jody Taylor, that's who it was. Jody yes. Taylor. I'm sorry. I, I, you know, getting old uh swiss cheese up here that's what's that's what's going on so thursday 7 p.m you can follow the zoom link uh, there's a zoom link on here i also have shared it to the uh, michael duke show facebook page as part of the event section there you can see it there and uh, you can participate if you'd like to uh, be part of it it'd be an interesting conversation uh all right well let's talk about the other elephant in the room and you and i were just talking about this during the commercial break which is the covid funding uh Obviously, the city of Kenai, who just denied that resolution for asking for more funds, one of the bones of contention was it's continuously the sky is falling. Every year there's some kind of crisis. Every year there's a shortfall. Every year we need more money. And yet we saw a just as tremendous raft of money get floated out 
by the federal government, especially to education systems, because obviously education was shut down and there were things that had to be done and yada, yada, yada. Uh, I mean, this is a huge deal. And uh, now we have districts that are sitting on a tremendous amount of money. Uh, what what have you found as you look at Alaska and the different districts and the systems and how much money is out there? What have you found out about the COVID money that remains uh, in Alaska unspent and what could be done with that? So in general, we've looked, the Department of Education publishes a dashboard and they update that dashboard approximately quarterly, although they're, they're not always on time with that. Um, we have summarized uh, updates on alaskapolicyforum.org. Uh, and our most recent one was March, 2023. So very recently, um, districts received $538 million in total. Uh, and they've spent 55% now. So a majority has been spent, but 45% remains. And that 45% is about $242 million left. Um, in many of these districts, you can see we've, we publish a table with all of the districts um, and how much they have left, how much they received per student. Uh, and so many districts still have 50% or more remaining. Uh, this The end of the funding uh, I believe it expires in September 2024, something like that. Uh, so they'll have it through this upcoming school year. Uh, so that is part of the going to be part of their budget discussions um, in the spring when they start to uh, finalize the budget for the 2023-2024 school year. And I mean, this is not an insignificant amount of money for some districts. It's I mean, not. it. I mean, 50, even if they have 45 or 50 percent of that money's left, and yet they come to us. And again, this is short-term, finite amounts of funding. They could use it on a one-term basis to help bolster programs and things like that. But instead, we've seen many of these districts tackle reoccurring costs with one-time funding bonuses and, and then put themselves in an even deeper position. As you said earlier, this gives them the opportunity to kick the can down the road. And, and that is problematic. I mean, but You've got some districts out there with tens of millions of dollars still sitting there, right? Yes, yes. And uh, one of the things nationwide, I was looking at a very interesting article this morning from the Edgenomics Lab at Georgetown University, and they did a kind of nationwide uh, survey of this thing. And they found that half of relief funds are paying for labor. Um, there's 22 states that do provide some detail on what was purchased, um, and that was just under 50%. Um, so they're, you know, talking about continuity of operations and things like that. They're using this to, you know, keep staff on, and they're not thinking about this perhaps permanent decline in enrollment in a lot of districts. A lot of districts are seeing this, and they're not pairing back their staff yet. Um, to to think about that. And we have to remember that staff is the biggest part of so many of these districts' costs, whether you're talking about teachers or administrators, it's all staff, they all get salaries and benefits, and that's right. a huge component of, of funding. Um, so, you know, we're paying for recurrent budget items. Um, it's a really fantastic way to avoid thinking about these annual efforts that districts usually do to rein in these escalating costs or right-sizing their operating budgets. Um, usually they would be having hard conversations every spring about it, but now they're seeing the end of this cliff and going, oh gosh, we have so many positions. It's going to be, you know, layoffs. It's going to be, you know, a really scary time if we don't find extra sources of funding for this. 
Well, and as you said, I think the thing that nobody seems to really is they're treating this as if it's a one-time spike in student enrollment decline, when in much mm-hmm. many cases, it's a continual, I mean, no, this is an ongoing thing, especially in Alaska post-COVID, we saw a significant increase in homeschooling and other correspondence type schools, and that's going to take that money straight out of the district. Less than 60 seconds, I'll give you the final word there. Yeah, I would just say that you know we've been watching this since it was started um and we're seeing a lot of the consequences now uh, districts need to be having these hard conversations uh, my last plug for you is that if you know a young person or you are a young person yourself please consider our internship program we're re- recruiting for summer 2023 uh, i had a great time uh and i i hope uh, to see some applications because that's where you came from you were an intern to be that's right exactly sarah montalbano from the alaska policy forum thanks for coming on and joining us folks we're out of time for this hour coming up next james bartlett author right here on the michael duke show I wish we'd had more time to get into that idea, Sarah, and this is you know, one of those things that kind of just happens organically during our conversations. I wish we'd had more time to get into that discussion about enrollment decline and what is, what is the new number, because I think many administrators in their arrogance think, oh, well, that's just a COVID thing and it'll come back, but I think that there's a... I think that there's a big change. I think that there's a fundamental shift going on uh, whether it's a paradigm shift or dichotomy shift, whatever you want to call it, in how mm-hmm. education is done. And we're going to see that enrollment, a good portion of that could be permanent. Yeah, I was going to say, I've actually got one number off the top of my head. Uh, correspondent school enrollment spiked to about 92% higher, almost doubled uh, from its pre-pandemic. And now it is still 42% elevated. So a lot of the people that tried this are sticking with it. Um, so that's, you know, a permanent enrollment shift we've seen. So they had almost a hundred percent increase and now they're almost. finding that almost half of them are going to stick with it afterwards. That's huge. Yeah. I mean, that is a it huge, is. huge number. And, uh, uh, and I think that it, it you know, at, uh, we, it, we, we discount that at our peril, I think. And I think mm-hmm. school administrators discount that at their peril as well. So absolutely. Well, uh, it's always good to see you. Uh, you're going to be hosting the uh, webinar on Thursday. You're going to be the moderator. I am. All right. Well, I am. Good for you. Look yeah. at you coming up in the world. It's going to be a late night. Pretty soon you're <laughs> going to be hosting your own radio show. That's how it's going to work around there. So <laughs> it'll be good stuff. I'd be delighted, but I don't want to. Yeah, I know. Not yet. <laughs> I, I can't take the competition, so it's fine. It'll be fun. So, Sarah Montalbano, Sarah Montalbano, I guess. Thank you, Sarah, for coming on board. It's good to talk with you. We will talk with you again uh, soon. Thank you very much. Talk soon. All right. Thanks for coming on board. Uh, All right. That means uh, we're into hour two. I see that our next guest, uh, James Bartlett, is uh, on the program. He's in the green room right now. We're going to go ahead and uh, before I get to all the comments uh, here, let's let's go over here and test some audio and see and make sure everything's good to go with with Mr. Bartlett. He joins us. uh, He joins us right now. Good morning, sir. How are you? Hello, Michael. Can you hear me? I can. I can. You sound. You sound can you good. Hear me at all? I can hear you. Yes, I can. You're all good. Great. Okay, good. Great. That's that's good. Uh, I, I, you can I always feel awkward in these headphones. So oh, yeah, I'm glad no. that you can hear me. 
I, uh, these are actually surgically welded to my head, so I don't know what you're talking about. It's fine. Um, well, I'm excited to talk a little bit about, right. uh, talk about your book and uh, to get some backstory. Uh, being an old Fairbanks boy myself, uh, I found it, it was uh, some interesting stuff. So I'm looking forward to uh, talking with you about that. Uh, so if you hold the line, I'll be right back to you. I'm going to put you back in the green room and we'll be right back to you. Okay. Sure. Uh, all right. So don't go anywhere. Uh, James Bartlett, author of the book, uh, uh, the, uh, Alaskan blonde. We're going to, we're going to talk about this cause it's an interesting true crime story. And, uh, I think a little bit of a fascinating piece of history. So it'll be, uh, it'll be good. Um, <clears throat> So uh, let me go back here into the chat room to see what you guys have been talking about while I was on with Sarah Montalbano. See if there's any comments here. Um, Brian did link that article from Reason Magazine on the schools and the overcrowding. Um, uh, local contributions. There are local contributions, impact aid, which is just 90%, but the formula is not the correct focus. The focus is the amount of money being sent to the districts after the calculations are done. But we also need to focus on the formula as well. I think we need to do both. I, I think we can do both. And I know that you've talked about uh, that we if we don't break into the formulas and we're wasting our time. I know that you've said that as well. Uh, can't we stop calling them public schools? Well, I mean, we could. Um, is Bethany still with a policy form? I believe so. Bethany Markham, is that who you're talking about? I believe she is. Um, you hate the children uh, is the only retort they have when they cannot come up with a cogent argument. I mean, it is that is the I mean, that is kind of a straw man argument when we've heard those kind of things that any kind of discussion on accountability and other things immediately becomes, well, why do you hate us? That's not what we said. What we said was, if we're going to spend more money on it, we need to make sure that there's a metric in place to track the results. I mean, that just seems like you know, I, I if I'm going to have a uh, if I'm going to have a contractor come in and and do work on my house, I need to have a metric. There's a metric in place for how he's doing, you know, built into a contract. That's that's how it works. You're tracking how the work is being done. Um, Let's see here. Um, uh, Going through here. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Light showers, light snow showers in the Kenai. Yeah, it's snowing here. I mean. This is the winter that will never end. All right. I'm serious. This is the winter that will never. It was all nice. We could see the roads. Things were melting down. And then we got another two inches of snow because I don't know, reasons, reasons. Um, all right. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Um, uh, there's always. Uh, okay. Uh, thank you. School districts, Donna Ardwin making the point that school districts make money from correspondent schools. That's what's going on. Um, all right. I guess that's it. I'm all caught up. I'm all caught up in the chat room, and we are 60 seconds away from the restart. And we've still got our guest, author uh, 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 James Bartlett, in the uh, chat room. And we're going to talk with him here in just a second about his book, The Alaskan Blonde. Sex, Secrets, and the Hollywood Story That Shocked America. Which, by by the way, born and raised in Fairbanks, had never heard of this story. I mean, it just shows you how out of time these things can be. I mean, this is 70 years ago. I just, I mean, I just didn't even know about it. Interesting. So, let's get into it. Uh, here we go. Uh, we're going to jump back 
and get things started. Hour two of the Michael Duke Show. Common Sense, Liberty-based, free-thinking radio. We return to kick things off the radio here in about 30 seconds. Don't go anywhere. its holster we haven't gone anywhere i don't understand check out the michaeldukeshow.com for information on how to get access to the podcast welcome to the party pal the, the michael dukes show the greed and the entitlement is astounding to me what more could you want from a low-budget radio program this is a dumpster fire. That was just BS. It is time to get a new perspective. We know just what you need, and we've got just the cure. Open wide and prepare for a steaming hot cup of freedom. I just don't fathom it. The Michael Dukes Show, streaming live across the world. That's right, across the world on the internet at MichaelDukesShow.com, where you'll find links to our audio-only live stream and, of course, links to our social media sites where we simulcast the radio show every morning on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch. Um, It's all, we're everywhere. We're omnipresent. And, of course, broadcasting live across the state of Alaska on this, your favorite radio station and or FM translator. Welcome to Monday. If you're just getting up and joining us, good morning. Welcome to the winter that never ends. We were just talking about that. I just like, it will not stop. Over 100 inches of snow in Anchorage for it's like the ninth or seventh time since they started tracking it back in the early 50s. It's been, it's been a while. Just more snow and cold and Summer is coming eventually. That's all like, you know, summer is coming. It's like the opposite of the Game of Thrones. Summer is coming. Uh, It'll eventually be here. Uh, But I thought we would change gears just a little bit. Now, normally we do a lot of politics and things like that, local state stuff. uh, But I always like to kind of mix it up. And uh, we've been doing a whole discussion on Alaskan authors and some of the other things uh, uh, that we've been doing. Today is a little bit different. Today, instead of an Alaskan author, it's a story about Alaska. Uh, with uh, author James Bartlett. Uh, he is a journalist, uh, has written a new book. Uh, it's the true crime book called The Alaskan Blonde, uh, Sex, Secrets, and the Hollywood Story That Shocked America. And it takes a look at a true crime story that happened uh, in the interior 70 years ago. Uh, James was a travel and lifestyle journalist and historian. He's written for the L.A. Times, the BBC, um, High Life, Westways, Fromers, Crime Reads, I mean, The Guardian. He's got a list that's as long as your arm. Uh, but I really wanted to talk about this book because uh, it takes place in my old hometown of Fairbanks. And it was a story that I had never heard of before, uh, which, again, from being in my hometown, I thought that was a, a little uh uh, a little strange that I'd never heard about it. So let's jump into it today and get the full rundown on everything that's happening with uh, author James Bartlett, who joins us uh, who joins us right now. Good morning, sir. How are you doing? Oh, we lost your audio. Your audio was good in the break, and now the audio is not there. Um, 
Um, you're not muted on my end. Did you mute yourself? No. There you go. Oh, you just cracked. There you go. Now I can hear you. Can you hear me now? I can hear you now. I can hear you now. <laughs> it's like the Verizon commercial. Can you hear me now? It is. Can you, can can you, you hear, hear me, me now? now? Uh, can you hear me now? Uh, so, uh, James, thanks for coming on the program. I really appreciate it. Let's, um, I mean, first, give us a little bit of background about yourself, just so that we know, you know, who you are, where you are, where you come from. You obviously don't sound Alaskan, but that's okay. That's, a, that's okay. That happens. So give us a little bit of background on yourself before we start talking about uh, uh, the story and, uh, and, and what happens there. So first, a uh, little background. Yeah, well, as you say, I'm not I'm not from uh, from uh, Alaska or America at all. Um, I'm from England originally, from London, about 15 miles um, north of London. But I've lived here in the States for uh, coming up to 20 years now. Actually, my my wife um, is American. So I moved over here to be with her about 20 years ago. Um, and I've worked as a journalist for about around about 20 years, a little bit longer than that. Um, and the way I got into this story or, or got into an Alaskan story and, and of course, I, much like many people, I knew very little about Alaska. I knew it was a long way away. I knew it was enormous. I knew there was a relatively small population, but I didn't know anything about that. It was never something that I figured I would spend any time, certainly not, maybe not visiting or researching. Um, but my background was journalism, travel and lifestyle journalism and so forth. But when I moved to Los Angeles um, as someone new in a very big city, I did try and explore a little and try and work my way around because it's a huge place. Um, and I like libraries and I like archives. So I looked into the newspapers and I looked into history and I ended up writing a couple of guidebooks, um, sort of alternative guidebooks to Los Angeles, mainly because I couldn't find a guidebook that I thought was fun, that was um, that had a number of places where you could actually go bars, restaurants, and hotels, right. and you could read the history of a place, and you could read about the architecture, and you could read what food and drink you could get, but then you could also read stories about celebrity stories, or even ghost stories, and some crime stories, and that was the thing that really started to uh, pull me in, was the crime stories, looking through the archives, right. and that led to the the book the alaskan blonde well and that's interesting because we know that uh i mean all you have to do is follow the trends on podcasts and other things and we understand that true crime is a huge draw for people uh to try and get into the minds and the old stories of things that happened and things like that uh so yeah i mean that's a you were perfectly perfectly positioned for that niche market that was that's really been taking off very over. very lucky yeah, yeah. i mean the, the the first book the first guide i did was was in 2012 so I just had a jump on it there and I found out immediately how incredibly popular it was. Yeah. And that led me to do a second book and and I was hosting a true crime book club and and it was it really became something that everyone was interested in. Everyone wanted to know more, 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 especially historical crime. Right. Um, because, you know, a hundred years ago you could buy poison. A hundred years ago, you know, murders weren't often solved. Right. Um, you know, society was very different. And I think we take a, a lot more interest and sometimes even a comfort in that rather right. than something that's contemporary. So uh, I guess my first question is, you know, again, the genesis of the book, why Alaska specifically? Why, I mean, there's plenty of true crime all up and down the West Coast, right there in California, L.A., your area, San Francisco. But why Alaska? What was the what was the thing that tripped you into the last frontier? 
Well, it, like many things, I guess, uh, is often the way it was chance. It really was chance. Um, I was researching the second guidebook that was all crime based, true crime based. And I would look for bars and restaurants and hotels. And then I would look up their history to see if any crimes had happened there. And often, especially in hotels, there had been. And there was a hotel in, in Hollywood here called the Hollywood Plaza Hotel that was that was very famous in the 30s and 40s. And um, it had a, a restaurant underneath, so it qualified for the book theoretically. And then I went to look into the history of the hotel, see if anything bad had ever happened there. And I found a few things, but I found this story about this. Um, uh, I, there's obviously going to be some spoilers, um, uh, right. uh, spoiler alerts here. <clears throat> but we'll keep, we'll found, call it spoiler light, right? It'll just be little. Spoiler, I'll keep yeah. it spoiler light, but it, it will have to come out in the end. But yes, I found there was a story related to this Hollywood Plaza hotel that was related to Fairbanks, um, and related to a murder that had happened in Fairbanks in October 1953. And I read read the story. It was an LA Times report because I was researching the, the local newspapers here. And I read the story and I thought, wow, I wonder what happened there. That sounds like an amazing story. I, I also thought it was a very modern story, despite happening 70 years ago. It seemed like it could have happened yesterday. It seemed the, the, the way the story happened. And I thought to myself, well, I'll, I'll, ha I'll have to read the book. I'll have to get the book out and uh, read the book or I'll have to listen to the, the radio coverage or I'll have to listen to, you know, the articles that people wrote about it. Because right. this is such an interesting story. It must have been covered at the time. And then I Googled it and did the research that I did and nothing really came up. And that that was really what initially piqued my curiosity was, why is there nothing about this? It sounds such an amazing story that, like we always like to imagine, is you couldn't make it up. You couldn't right. make up this story. And then I began to think to myself, well, I wonder if any of the people who were involved are still around today. I wonder if, you know, perhaps this is just a one-off article maybe, you know, and, and maybe I could find them and ask, you know, so what happened? No one ever wrote about this story. What happened? And as you said, you're, you're from Fairbanks yourself, you know, you've lived there for decades and you'd never heard of this. And that was very much true. When I spoke to the family members, when I first spoke to them and all the way through my research, it was a story that was completely pretty much swept under the carpet. It really wasn't talked about, certainly amongst the family members. I was amazed when I spoke to the family members. They nearly all said to me, well, what do you know? Because it was never spoken to about us. We never spoke about it. It was a family secret. No one ever said anything. And, you know, I'm 75 and I have no idea what happened. All I know is that my uncle, my brother, you know, my grandfather was murdered and they think this and this happened. But that's all that I've ever known. So give us some backstory. Set up, set the story, set the scene as to what uh, what what happened in Fairbanks seventy years ago. That uh, is kind of the basis for what your story is and and what you what you've discovered. Okay, well, I'll give you the quick the elevator pitch, as they say. Um, I, I presume you've got some some uh, listeners who are in Fairbanks. Hello to all of them. Um, so they they will know where I'm talking about, and you certainly will as well. But um, so it was October the seventeenth. 1953, about 7, 7.15 in the morning. Uh, and Diane Wells, who is the Alaskan blonde, that's who the book is named after. She's the lady on the cover. That's a real picture of her um, at Seattle Airport. Um, she banged on a neighbor's door of the Northwood building. She and her husband, Cecil, lived in the Northwood building with their young son. Uh, the Northwood building is still there. 
in Fairbanks. It's uh, one of the tallest buildings uh, in, in, in downtown. It's, I mean, it's eight stories high. It's quite a distinctive silver sort of H-shaped building um, the ice at the, time, the, the ice palace that's what it's called the, the ice, ice palace, palace. <laughs> right, yes yeah. uh, it's 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 still known locally as the ice palace from the a 1960 movie and a 1958 book an edna ferber book that was about um alaska and its um search for uh territorial status um a, a, around a romantic melodrama um but it, it, it was the ice palace later but at the time it was a new building the latest building and cecil and diane wells both lived there because they were very much an it couple of the town. Um, but Diane that morning banged on her neighbor's door. She was hysterical. Um, she said that two men had broken in in the middle of the night, shot her husband Cecil while he was asleep in bed, beaten her up. She had two black eyes and a cut face, stolen some money and jewelry and run away. So the police came and investigated and initially they thought it was a, a robbery turned violent. There had been a few locally um, and they thought it was another example of this. But then the police got a tip off that she had been having an affair or allegedly having an affair with a local musician who was a black guy named Johnny Warren. And that changed the story completely. Um, the main thing that it changed was that uh, stories from territorial Alaska at the time didn't really tend to make the press in the lower 48 or anywhere else, particularly maybe other than the politics right. um, and, and anything related to military stuff. This story did, though. This was covered on all the wires, all the way across America. It was even covered across internationally as well because of this angle, the affair. There was the affair between a white woman and a black man. And, and of course, the very film noir element that Cecil was a very rich, middle-aged businessman, the victim, and his wife, Diane, was his fifth wife. She was 20 years younger than him. And as you can see from the picture in the book, she was young and glamorous and blonde and, you know, had fantastic hair and was beautiful. And that was all the elements of like a film noir story. So the police then kind of zeroed in their investigation on Diane and Johnny Warren and figuring that perhaps the two of them had conspired in order to kill Cecil, in order to get Cecil's money, which was imagined to be maybe a million dollars or more. He, he had a lot of investments, mining, real estate. He was a huge auto dealer in Anchorage first, actually. Very big connection to Anchorage. He's, he's buried in Anchorage. Um, he had a big connection to Anchorage first before going up to Fairbanks. And they assumed it was about the money um, that that he had. Um, he was he, he was an investor in the, the Chena Hot Springs, which is right. super famous, right. um, which everybody knows. Um, and then, and so the book looks again at the investigation, the police investigation. So I got the FBI files, I got the police files and looked again at the investigation and what they did and how how the family thought about it and what the family thought at the time. I interviewed the family members and then in the book, I lay it out chronologically. And in the last chapter, I put what I think happened on the night of the murder because Little. it never came to trial. Uh, it never, no one was ever convicted in relation to it and um, that's that's part of the story obviously that's interesting um, all right well yeah. don't, don't let's not uh, let's not burn everything up here because we got to yeah. take a commercial break we're going to come back here in just a minute we're talking with james bartlett he's the author of the true crime book the alaskan blonde again a true story that takes place in fairbanks uh, 70 years ago, 1953, coming up in October of 1953. Uh, we're going to continue here in just a moment. Don't go anywhere. We're going to continue. James Bartlett, 
uh, will return in just a moment. The Michael Duke Show, common sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. A little bit of a change of pace today. Finding out about some interesting stuff. We will continue with more in just a moment. Don't go anywhere. Back with more after this. Broadcasting live through a series of tubes. Allowing all of these entities to provide streaming stuff going on on the the, the internet. Well, it's kind of hard to explain. Sorry. Streaming live every weekday morning on Facebook Live and MichaelDukesShow.com. Okay, uh, in the break right now, uh, James Bartlett, our guest uh, here on the program. You've written some other books, too, and I know my wife is uh, is interested. She loves true crime, but she also loves uh, paranormal. I know you wrote a book, uh, again, you were talking about ghost stories uh, in the Los Angeles area and things like that, some of your guidebooks. Uh, one of them is the, uh, uh, was it the Ghost Gourmet? Gourmet Ghost? Gourmet Ghost, yes, yeah, that's yeah. right. So tell us uh, tell us a little bit about that and some of the stories from about that while we're in the break. We like to we like to mix it up while we're in the commercial Yeah, break, so. they, they, again, enormously popular as a subject, um, the supernatural and ghosts and ghost stories especially. Um, and they, they were the two guides that I wrote were called Gourmet Ghosts, you know, Gourmet Ghost 1 and Gourmet Ghost 2. And they were initially, the first book especially, was based around ghost stories that I was being told in bars and restaurants and hotels when I would go and visit and sit at the bar. Um, And the bartender or some of the staff would, you know, start talking to you and they'd tell you maybe a bit of the history of the building and so forth. And almost inevitably, a ghost story would come out or a ghost story or two. And I was kind of amazed because, you know, being a journalist, you try and be sort of impartial and take everyone at their word and do your research to find out what they're telling you. Because, of course, a ghost story, you know, theoretically, you can never prove a ghost story. Um, So what I did, and that was the point of the books, was I I would listen to the story and then I would look it up in the newspapers at the address of the building to see if anything had happened there, to see if it could in any way connect to the apocryphal story. And I was amazed when like eight or nine or ten of the stories had some connection there was had been a crime at these buildings that related to the ghost story that people told, which amazed me. And that just set me off on on a rabbit hole. People would say, you need to go to this place. You need to go to this hotel. You need to go to that hotel. You need to go to that bar. Oh, that place is 100 years old. Go there. Go and ask them about X, Y, and Z. Go and ask them about Booth 8. Go and ask them. And I just collected all these stories into these two books. And that morphed into some crime ones because, of course, a lot of murders and so forth were often crime related right um and that led to the second book which was more crime the first book is very ghost story the second book is very crime and and i I will say all the stories that people told me i believed that they had definitely seen something or had a, a frightening or or a strange experience of some kind i never really thought that anyone was really stringing me along Right. And in so much as you can be. And there were some really good stories, stories that I, especially when they would tell me the story, I would look them up in the archives. And there were some that directly related to the story that I've been. And there was no way they could know because I I was doing some deep research. There was no way the people telling me these stories could have known about these things. And some of them I was I, I thought to myself, that's exactly the story you're telling me. 
Right. That exactly. actually happened. That's crazy. Uh, did you, yeah. Do you cover the Cecil Hotel, just out of curiosity? Oh, of course, yeah. I mean, that was, that was in the second book. I, I had to put it in because, yeah. um, as, you, as you probably know, or as many other people know, that was the hotel in 2013 where the, uh, the Canadian Chinese tourist, Elisa Lam, was found in the water tank at the top. Very uh, strange and, and tragic story. She was found in the water tank, um, dead uh, at the top of the Cecil Hotel. And the Cecil Hotel has been another 100-year-old hotel close right. enough um again another hotel that in its day was extremely luxurious very very high end but that hotel as i found in my research has an inordinate number of crimes and uh strange stories associated yeah. with it way well, more more suicides murders <clears throat> serial killers stalkers baby murderers everything uh, a sniper everything you can imagine has happened at that Cecil Hotel. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, you watch her behavior at the very end there. They've got video and stuff, and it's so it's bizarre. It's very strange. And then, of yeah, course, and, you, and that, that became... Yeah. yeah, yeah. you find out that the Satanist and the serial yeah, it's, killer it's were there. It's such an odd just video of so in the in the elevator. And the elevator's you know, this still there. I've been to the Cecil Hotel a couple of times doing TV stuff, and the, the elevators are still there. You, know, yeah. you stand in the same hotel and stand in the corner where she was, and she looked distressed. Yeah, and unhappy and very unsettled at something. That well, was going we're gonna on. we're gonna jump back in here uh, and continue our guest James Bartlett, author of the book The Alaskan Blonde, The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense, Liberty Based, Free Thinking Radio. Like and share the show. Like and follow. Make sure you hit it on Facebook and YouTube. Let's do it. Welcome back to the program. We're continuing now. Our guest is James Bartlett, author of uh, several different books, but most recently we're talking about his book, The Alaskan Blonde. It's a true crime story out of Fairbanks. Uh, very interesting. Like I said, um, I mean, I had never heard of it. And as he pointed out earlier, that's because nobody, I mean, this is kind of like the story that nobody really knew about. And of course, uh, still unresolved to this day uh james you were talking about how you went and did some deep dive you did some research you found uh you went through the fbi files you you know what are some of the interesting things that you pulled out i mean we're not looking for spoilers but some of the interesting things that you pulled out of these uh accounts and interviews and and the research in the fbi files what what did you find well, I guess, I mean, there's a lot of things. I, I mean, I'm going to go straight to straight to one of the ends from the, the things that I found in relation to the book was that in talking to some of the relatives of the people who were around at the time, because of course, 70 years ago, no, none of the people who were there at the time are alive anymore, but their children are, and even their grandchildren, and, and some of them knew about the case or had remembered that their father mentioned it. And there was a guy who was a, a deputy marshal at the time, um, he later worked for the, the Fairbanks PD and was a firefighter in Fairbanks. Um, and he was directly involved in the case from the beginning. Um, he actually extradited um, Johnny Warren when Johnny Warren was um, uh, arrested in, he, he, he was actually in Oakland, California, and he was extradited back to Fairbanks because Johnny Warren and Diane Wells were charged with the murder of Cecil Wells. So he was directly involved in the case and I managed to track down his children and they told me that he had an unpublished memoir 
And I oh, said, wow. well, is there any chance that he mentioned this case? Because as I, as I say, despite by what it seems, it was a sensation at the time. It was sort of a short-lived sensation. It was a it was sort of a seventh-month story with a lot happening at the beginning. Then there was a gap before the trial began or the trial was supposed to begin. And then there was a lot that happened at the end. And they had an unpublished memoir and they said, yes, he does mention it. And there were a couple of things that he mentioned in the memoir that he firstly hadn't mentioned that and weren't in any of the police files. And secondly, that he had mentioned that were in the police files, but that he had now also mentioned privately, which really made me think that what he was thinking had some real basis behind it. Um, so th that was one of the things in the book. Other things, as, as far as the police files go, they it seems like they, as you might imagine, this being 70 years ago, the police service in Fairbanks was pretty underfunded right. and small, and they did not have a lot of facilities. Of course, the technology was nothing like we imagine today. Um, and the main thing that I got from the files, I guess, in terms of the actual physical evidence was that they never found the gun. They never found the murder weapon. And as, as true, true crime fans probably know, it's often very hard to prove a murder case beyond reasonable doubt if you don't have a weapon that matches the bullets. Right. Uh, it's always difficult. And, and I've, I found that in the end, the, the Fairbanks PD actually sent four guns to the FBI over, this would have been over seven years. They, they actually kept investigating the case for seven years from 1953 to 1960. And they sent four guns that they found and none of them ever matched. And they went to ex some extraordinary lengths to try and find a match to match the gun to the bullets. And they never managed to do that. And really, it was clear very early on, despite what it sounds like, that it was a very circumstantial 50-50 case at best. Yeah. Um, but one of the big <laughs> factors in the story was that, as, as, as I'm sure all your listeners will know, being 53, 1953 in the late 50s, becoming a territory was a big deal for Alaska. And it really did seem to get a little bit swept up in that because it was it was quite a high profile murder and he was a well-known person he was head of the Alaska Chamber of Commerce he was well known and for him to be shot at home in his bed and no one to be immediately arrested and go to prison for the crime didn't look great and i think it it was there was definitely some thought and discussion at some stage of look we need to make this kind of go away if we can because this is not helping us right because it's kind of overshadowing our bid for territorial status or state very yeah. much yeah. yeah i mean the the police system and the jail system was not great which i talk about in the book and of course that's an issue that's an issue if you're applying to be you know a state because you know very well that dc and so forth is saying well okay how do you run your territory how right. do you run it? How do you deal with crime? How do you deal with law and order? Hang on, we've just seen a picture of like this guy who, you know, is the head of the Alaska Chamber of Commerce, a millionaire businessman has just been shot in his bed and you haven't got a suspect. What's right. going on here? Right. You know, and it, and there had been a number of other robberies um, in, in Fairbanks with prominent local businessmen at home invasions. Two men had broken into houses and said, give me all your money. There'd been several of them, and it, it was not, a, as we say today, it was not good optics. Right. And as this case went on, and this case became, an, became something that was in the a, a US press, it became a thing. 
And because they weren't solving it, and it didn't look like they were getting close to it, it was a problem, I think. And that became a real factor. And, and you know, politics always plays a part in almost every crime, especially, you know, because Alaska still had the death penalty at the time, technically. I mean, you know, Johnny Warren was technically facing the death penalty if he was found guilty. Right. Um, and so that, that became an issue as well. That was a, a, a thing I really didn't anticipate finding out. Now, it's not directly mentioned in the police files, of course, because that's not their business. Right. But when you do research, which I had to do around the history of Alaska and, and around the history of Fairbanks and, and Anchorage as well, you know, as the two, two big cities, it was a real eye opener into the history generally of Alaska and how it took so long for them to get territorial status. I assumed, you know, being from England, that all the states basically just got it all in a row. They all just lined up. And, yeah, no. You know, they, it was just a click of the, a rubber stamped, really, because right. they all wanted to. It turns out it wasn't that at all. Yeah. yeah the same for Hawaii. You know, right. Hawaii was doing the same thing at the time. Well, it's interesting to say, I mean, uh, you know, what were the did, did you did you get a feel for the ramifications of not just on the uh, territorial statehood uh, scale, but uh, what about the local community? I mean, the reaction from the local community and how it felt, like you said, there were already other crimes going on. What did this yeah. do in the communities? Did this create a fervor? Was this, you know, was it you're fear based? Right. I mean, what, what was going on there? Yes, you're absolutely right. That's a good question. You're absolutely right. Yes, it did. Um, the community was already a bit up in arms about the the level of crime, as as most communities often are. You know, crime is never something that's something we can ignore and doesn't happen very often. The community was in an uproar, and this took things to a kind of hysterical level. I mean, the, the chief of police at the time, who was new to the job, he'd just been in a few months. He only lasted about six weeks before he resigned. I mean, everybody wanted in on this particular one. Everyone had an opinion. It became a, um, for, for want of a better word, territorial thing. So there was the the local police, the troopers, the FBI was involved. Um, everyone seemed to be sticking their nose in and wanting to get this sorted out. And of course, what happened was they weren't communicating with each other and time went on. And again, a suspect wasn't being, quote unquote, uh, they were being arrested and charged but both Diane Wells and Johnny Warren, you know, got out on bail. You know, Diane immediately came down to Los Angeles and that's how the Hollywood Los Angeles element of the book comes into it. Right. And how I, I could find out so much living here because she came down to Los Angeles straight away when she got out on bail. But interestingly, Johnny, who was possibly the one who was in the most jeopardy in a way, um, because, you know, this was, Jim Crow America in, in, in that particular period, you know, he was very much being looked at as a bit of the villain of the piece. Right. She was the, you know, the gold digging blonde, but he was the villainous black guy, right. you know, the musician. Right. Because um, it was a different, again, 70 years ago, totally different time in America, right? Totally different time in America. And, and so he stayed in Fairbanks, but interestingly, locally, as you said, he stayed living and working in Fairbanks. The people in Fairbanks didn't really seem to think that he had a lot to do with it. He kept his job. He worked at the Piggly Wiggly. He kept working as a musician. You know, he was even employed by um, one of Cecil Wells's best friends and business partners to work for him, almost as a show of support for him. The public level of support for him was not really that he was involved. He may have had an affair with, with someone, which you shouldn't do because, you know, he was married and she was married. But public opinion wasn't so much against him. Public opinion was a lot more against her because she was the young, attractive blonde. Right. Um, and people thought she was, a, you know, the, the, 
the the nice ladies that I was talking to, they were using like the words car girl, card girl. Right. Stereotypical and, uh, gold diggers, which I think you're saying. Yeah, right, they, yeah, they were using those kind of words. Most people had good things to say about her. They said she was a, like a, a very nice person. She was great with kids. You know, she was a, a, a young person. You know, she had a she had a difficult life of her own, which, of course, was what I discovered during the research of the book. Um, but she seemed to be a good mother to her and Cecil's son, Mark. You know, she seemed to love her kid. And she brought Mark down to Los Angeles to try and start over, at least for a few months before the trial began. But then there was a third suspect, as there always is. Um, and he was in Fairbanks as well. And he'd come up from Anchorage um, about a year or two before. Um, and this third suspect, whose name was William Columbany, he had been actually named publicly by the deputy marshal that I told you about, who'd done the extraditions. He'd been named publicly by him as being a very a man very much of interest, very much of interest in the case. And that doesn't usually happen. Right. Usually law enforcement don't say, you know what, Johnny Warren here, there's a picture in the book, which of course was never published. That, that was one of the most amazing things that I found, which his daughter sent me from his memoirs. There's a picture of him in the book with Johnny Warren and Johnny Warren is in handcuffs because he just come back on the plane. He's been extradited. And the two of them are just laughing like two old friends. And it's such an odd picture to see because you think, wait a minute, that guy is supposed to have murdered a man in cold blood or at least have been involved in it. And the guy on his the side of him is extraditing him back on a charge of first degree murder. How come they seem so relaxed and happy? And the deputy marshal said publicly, he said, you know, I don't think this guy had anything to do with it. Interesting. You know, he, said that, he said that to reporters. Right. You know, he said, I don't think this guy had anything to do with it. He was obviously involved, but I don't think he had anything to do with the murder. Now, for him to say that publicly was quite the deal. Uh, we got just a couple, three minutes here left, and I wanted to say, so So it never went to trial. They were charged, but it never yeah, they, went to trial. They were, both, they were both charged. Now I can give you, if, we, if we're running out of time a little, I can give a little bit of a spoiler alert um, for the end. But yes, they were both charged. They were due to go to trial in April 1954. Um, but unfortunately, uh, Diane Wells, who'd come down to L.A. with her son, she uh, had been on um, barbiturates, antidepressants. And uh, she she made the decision to take her own life in the end rather than go to trial. Um, she left several suicide notes, um, one specifically saying, I, I, I can't put my son through this, the, the humiliation, the publicity of a trial. It will follow him all his life. And I did manage to locate the son, who now, of course, is a much older gentleman indeed. And it kind of had did follow him all through his life. He always worried about it. It was always something that uh, he didn't have a particularly happy life. So it was the tra tragic ending round and John on the hook until 1960. He announced a trial a couple of times and, um, and postponed it again until 1960, post-statehood. And then he got a letter that said, you, you exonerated. We're not pursuing the charges against you anymore wow. because they never really had any evidence against him. Right.
Well, I'm fascinated to read the book in its uh, in its total. You can go to the alaskablonde.com and uh, James Bartlett has a link of where to buy it. I'm sure you could find it at major outlets, including Amazon, uh, the alaskablonde.com. James Bartlett is our guest, uh, author of the book. Uh, James, thanks for coming on board and joining us today. It's an interesting, uh, definitely an interesting conversation, especially a little piece of Alaska history that many of us are probably not aware of. Uh, even those of us who've lived in, and again, born and raised here. Well, thank you so, so much for having yeah, me. Yeah, it's uh, it's been an interesting uh, been an interesting conversation. And uh, any final thoughts before I let you go? I I just wanted to say th- thank you to all the people in Alaska who've been so supportive of of me and my research and the book because I I did think it was kind of a tough gig going up to somewhere you know not not even being American or Alaska and going up somewhere and asking about a story from a long time ago and you know, a, a tragic story that affected a lot of people over generations, but everyone was uh, was nothing more than helpful and generous and kind. And the, the reaction to the book's been really, really good. And, and people have seemed to have really liked it and have been really thought that it was interesting and a good bit of history. And, and that was really all I hoped for. Well, that's all anybody could hope for. Somebody finds an interest in the things that you write. I think that's fantastic. Uh, All right, James, hold the line for just a second. Folks, we're out of time for this segment. we got more coming up. We're going to have one more segment after this. A little bit of open line, open forum. The Michael Duke Show continues. Common sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Our light, our guide... And our trusted friend. Okay, in the break uh, with uh, James uh, James Bartlett. Um, uh, James, I uh, this is a fascinating story, and uh, I definitely, I definitely going to have to get a copy of the book. And and uh, I know my wife is going to, you know, just suck that stuff <laughs> up. She loves uh, she loves the true crime stuff, and it's interesting. Has this uh, has this has this opened your eyes or, or given you an interest for more kind of Alaskan true crime? Cause we are kind of an untapped market for some of that stuff, right? I mean, there, there are, there are some interesting things that have happened here in the state. Yeah. It's interesting. You should say that when, when I came up to, uh, to Fairbanks in October, uh, to do a few talks and a couple of signings, I, I promised I would come back when the, when the book was finished. I'm sure people thought he's never going to do this, but I did go back and do some talks. And of course people came up to me after them and said, did you ever hear about this? Did you ever hear about this? People emailed me and sent me lots of stuff. And there were two or three interesting stories that I came across. And you're right. It's a completely untapped market, which I really found strange. Like I said, I, I found it strange that there wasn't a book about this one right? Uh, to start with. Um, you know, you've got uh, even in uh, just in recent times, you know, the pipeline stories of, of stuff that's happened on the pipeline. Sure. People gave me lots of stories about that. Um, and I think it's because... In part, I, I found out that certainly that Alaskans love history, especially Alaskans history, and they're voracious readers. That's what I found out, massively massive readers. But I think uh, it seems like they often get a bit of a raw deal from the rest of the states. I think the rest <laughs> of the states kind of ignore them a little. And I, I don't think I'm talking, I'm preaching to the converted right, here, yeah, I think. No. But I think they get ignored a little because when, when I went the first time to Fairbanks in 2018, you know, I, I went to the Big Eye and I went to the couple of bars and I talked to some of the old guys who were in there because I knew they'd be the ones who might have been around or could remember it. And they said to me, you know, 
we have tourists who come here and you know there's a lot of cruises these days and a lot of people come for the aurora to fairbanks especially and they said you know we have people who come here americans you know from 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 the lower 48 come up and say you know well we always thought alaska was an island and i said well, <laughs> how, how can they think alaska is island? well they see because on the news reports for the weather yeah. it's in a little box like hawaii is right so right. they think it's an island because it's you know that it's not a and i think that a lot of people still think that oh I, yeah I, I think i think a lot of people aren't particularly well informed because a lot of alaska news doesn't filter down right you know and so i think in terms of you know true crime stories i mean as i found out with this book you know the um the robert hansen you know the the uh the baker butcher from baker Anchorage. yeah butcher baker yeah. yeah now that was a huge that was a hugely popular book and a well-known story there's been a couple more recently that have had some alaskan connections but they're really hasn't ever been say more than a couple of books about say serial killers which are the big selling ones and it's not that they haven't happened in alaska i just think people think well it's only alaskans who are going to be interested in this yeah and i, I don't think that's well, the case uh, I, I, yeah, I don't think that's the case i agree with you because i think alaska is on a lot of people's minds a lot of people dream of going to alaska or you know it's it's one of their things or bucket lists or whatever yeah and so kind of that conjunction of uh the true crime and alaska i mean yeah you've got butcher baker you've got israel keys you've got you know a few of these very very well known but there are there are dozens of other stories that are untold and uh and i think that that's uh i think that that's an important part i think that's a missing component here uh and more alaskan stories i think you could carve your niche on just uh, good old alaskan stories well, that's it. It's not. It's not been too bad. I, I wouldn't be unhappy doing that. I tell you, because I, I really enjoyed it, and and the the research is fascinating. As you say, it, it's not something that's that well covered. I, I think maybe you're right. Perhaps people see it as some sort of like, you know, wild, snowy paradise where no nothing bad happens. Right. Maybe they. Maybe people think that. I, I think people think that about Hawaii. Right. You know, nothing, nothing bad must ever happen in Hawaii. Look at it. It's so far away and it's exotic. It must, nothing bad ever happens there. Whereas you get LA or New York, you think, oh yeah, bad stuff happens there. Right. All the time. Right. Yeah. You know, it's got to be that way, but you know, human beings are human beings, you know, and, and unfortunately bad stuff does happen. I mean, you know, that I went right back to the beginning of the, I was like a guy called the blueberry kid way back in like 19 and something, the early 20s, he was supposed to have killed like half a dozen people. Right. And you know, there's nothing about that, but you look into Alaskan history and his name pops up. Right. Soapy, but, you know, it, yeah, Soapy Smith and the Blueberry Kid and some of the other Soapy ones. Soapy Smith, yeah. yeah. I mean, and a lot of it's got to do with distribution as well. And as, as a lot of your listeners will know, you know, deliveries and getting things delivered and stuff, you know, it's because Alaska is so far away, it gets considered different. Like book distribution is done differently. Right. You know, certain things will not include Alaska right. in what they're doing. Yeah. And so that can, you, you have to be quite determined and it has to be like this was an Alaskan book. I thought, well, I've, I've got to do whatever's necessary because this is a book that happens in Alaska. Can if, you, if, uh, if, if anywhere it's got to go, I've got to take it there. Can you stick with us for the final segment? I don't have anything yeah, else course, going on. Yeah, I, no, know, no, no, no. Because yeah, I'd like to talk like. about maybe the next part of this because I, I think that's I think that's true. I mean, I would encourage you to continue to pursue that. And uh, But let's, let's hold the line. We're 15 seconds out. The Michael Duke sure. Show continues. Uh, we're going to continue with uh, James Bartlett because we can because I said so. Uh, here we go. Uh, common Sense, Liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Like it, share, like it, share, like it, follow, subscribe, ring the bell. Let's do it.
Okay, I made an executive decision and decided to uh, keep James Bartlett on for one final segment. We got talking, and the next thing I know, we're out of the commercial break already, so I've asked him to continue uh, because we were having this fascinating conversation about, um, you know, about how different Alaska is and how there are so many more stories to be told and kind of his surprise in the fact that Alaska is kind of like that undiscovered country or that untapped resource as far as stories and ideas and things like that. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of stuff still here, James, right? Yeah, it really, it's, it's, you know, it's, it, it, it really did open my eyes and, and made me a lot more interested in learning, certainly about the history. And, you know, history is violent and complicated and difficult. And Alaska has an amazing history. Right. I mean, you know, you, you just think of the major events that have happened in, in Alaskan history, even if you just go back just the gold rush alone. Let's just say the, the, the gold, let's just look at the gold rush alone. There's some amazing stuff that happened in the gold rush that I had no idea about. You know, and there are books out there, and you know that the Cole brothers obviously have written a, a tons of them, right. which I've got all of them. Right, you right. Know, there's a lot of those, but I, I just think people, maybe it's the rest of the country. I, I think it's maybe I'm being a little unfair. I think if you go to any state, they'll always be interested most in stories about their own state, right? Which is fair enough. I, I think sure. that's very fair, and obviously certain states get pushed more than others and have more of an influence than others. But there is something about Alaska, as I'm sure, you know, everyone in Alaska, as you say, everyone who comes up to Alaska wants to, you know, kick it off the bucket list or start over or, you know, try and live in the wild, quote unquote, for a while. You know, that it's the, uh, I think there's only a few places in the state, at least to my mind, and, you know, I am a stranger, you know, I'm not, I'm not American, I'm not from America. I think that that really helped me that gives you a perspective, sport. right? I mean, it gives you an outside, yeah. a kind of an outsider's perspective. But I mean, I think you're right. I mean, Alaska is that, you know, it's that wild, untamed land. It's the Jack London kind of feel of, yeah. you know, the wild, wild west, but only with snow and kind of thing. And, and you know, that's yeah. how people think about it. And a lot of times it's more of an afterthought. Uh, you had an interesting yeah. point where you said, you know, people see and think about Alaska, but they think, oh, it's just the world. Nothing, nothing bad could ever happen there. Uh, you know, kind of thing. But I mean, Alaska will kill you. I mean, this place is, you know, it is it is harsh. It is brutal at times. It's beautiful, but it will kill you. And and people just seem to put that kind of thing out yeah. of their mind and the human element, add the human element to it. And now you've got the perfect recipe for crime, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, you see there's been the explosion in the last few years, the reality TV shows where people go up to Alaska sure. and have to survive on their own. Right. You know, so people think of that and then they watch it a TV in an hour segment and they think, well, they've managed. You know, I could be it can't be that bad. But, you know, it's it's, it's again, look at the statistics, the size of Alaska is just enormous. Right. And that's another thing I, I think people don't really understand. And, you know, you look at the centers of population. You know, you've got Anchorage, which is huge, pretty huge. And there's a big drop off after that. And I think most people in, in most other places think, well, hang on, how can it be a step? How can a place like that have such small centers of population? It's so enormous. Where's everything? What is everything? What's in, in the rest of everything? And you go, well, not a lot. Right. You know, lots of animals and lots of things to explore. Right. You know, there is. But. And that also means that there's not a lot going on in terms of if anything goes wrong or anything turns bad. Right. There's a big chance that you're never going to, you know, even even just on a completely different thing, you know, as you know, the uh, the number of light aircraft and small planes that crash every year, you know, that in Alaska, that, that was unbelievable to me. 
right. how often that happens and how many people in Alaska have a license and how kids learn to fly and how much it's a part of life as commuting would be right. on a bus for me. Yeah. I, I don't think people understand that that's possible because where else might you get that? Right. You know, there were, there are obviously other places, but that seems to be an amazing way of life. Yeah. Well, it's you a know, whole different idea. mentality. It's a whole different mentality. I mean, I come from gold right. miners. My grandfather hiked up or my great grandfather hiked up over right. the Chillicoot Trail when I, you know, and, right. you know, so it's a whole different feel. And I always had to laugh because I'd be like, oh, I'm taking a trip to Fairbanks you know, from the Matsu, or I'm taking a trip from Fairbanks to uh, to Anchorage. And, and people up here is like, oh, okay, down there, it's like, that's a 400-mile trip. And people down there are going, you're just going to hop in the car and drive 400 miles? Well, yeah. I mean, the nearest town is, you know, the nearest town is 60, 80, 100, 200 miles away. It's yeah. no big deal. Down there, it's like, yeah. oh, I couldn't even bother to be driving 15 miles to go have dinner somewhere. That's a long trek, you know? Right. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, everyone has a – there's a lot of places where people have a very comfortable life on a very general level day to day. And, you know, they're used to that and they like that. And the idea of doing something that's not that doesn't necessarily appeal. You know, it doesn't necessarily appeal to do that as romantic as it may sound. You know, but I just found – yeah, just the idea of like that, you know, I, I did so much research on the, uh, the Alaska Highway and the building of that. That – I can't believe that there aren't 500,000 books and right. 10 movies about that. That, that is extraordinary. It's like the eighth wonder of the world. It really is. It, I mean, it really, I, I cannot believe. And I, I talk to people about that and they're like, oh, is that the road in Alaska? And I'm like, well, I, kind of. But I mean, and people have no idea what went into it. That is amazing to me, for right. example. No, another I, thing. I agree. I, I agree. I think that, uh, you know, Alaska, like you said, a lot of people think Alaska is an island because up on the school map, it's down here below Hawaii, yeah. you know, so they have no idea. Uh, but it is yeah. it is kind of, again, it's the undiscovered country. It is that it is the last frontier. And I think people the the dreams are built from that or people just don't know. Uh, so I guess my final question here for you as we get ready to wrap up. Are you doing more Alaska stuff? Is it? I mean, is this is this going to become a new obsession? What do you What do you say? Well, I, it, I have been. I have. I there's a couple of stories that I've got m my eyes on, and I've done some inquiries and stuff. But it takes time. A, a lot of it's got to do with getting, um, you know, documentary evidence, documentary materials, which aren't always possible. You know, one of the ones at the moment, the stuff I'm hoping is there is literally in cold storage. That's what the guy told me. And I said, you mean cold storage? You mean? And he's like, no, no, no. I mean, it's in storage and it's not heated. So the place is literally freezing at the moment. Right, it's right. winter. And as you've said, you've had an endless winter. Right. So right. I'm waiting for the for the breakup so that it gets to be spring so that this guy can literally go into this storage unit and try and find this stuff for me. So that's one thing. And plus, I'm, I'm trying to find other things about interesting people from, from um, Alaskan past you know, that we just have never heard about, but have amazing stories. Right. And, you know, sure, there are amazing stories in every state, in every place in the world. But as you say, Alaska's somehow a bit more different than a lot of other places. Well, it holds a piece it of... it has that immediate thing that people go, oh, Alaska. Yeah. Someone did that in Alaska? Wow. Well, it's very whimsical. It, it is, you know, it inspires it, the, the, the idea of Alaska, the concept of it, of that last frontier kind of thing. I mean, that's a, that's a big deal. And people, yeah. you know, I've always said, I think I've met a lot of people who said, oh, I dreamed of Alaska. 
I dreamed of going to Alaska. I dreamed of trying it, of being there. And, you know, I when I was a kid, mm-hmm. I worked the tour buses and I met 70 and 80 year old people who said it's been my entire dream to come here and and visit Alaska. That's a, that's an amazing thing. It's an amazing place to live, but it's also an amazing place to visit. And it's cool to hear that I love history and I love the stories. And that's why I think this is going to be fascinating. And I hope you stick with it. I hope you stick with more Alaska. Oh, yeah. And cold storage. Yeah. I mean, I had cold storage at my house. It was like 57 below. Definitely cold in the storage unit. That is- <laughs> that's incredibly cold. Yeah, yes, that's, that's, exactly, that's exactly, incredibly cold. That's it right there for sure. Uh, all right, uh, James, people can find your book at thealaskanblonde.com and your other stuff there as well. Yeah, yeah, that, there'll, there'll be a link to everything that's there. It, it is on sale in a few places in Anchorage. It's in Tidal Wave, which I found out this week. Tidal Wave books, biggest, yep. Which is great, and it's on sale in a few places in Fairbanks. But if 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 in doubt, you can you can always get it on Amazon. Plus, it's in the libraries. The libraries help me so much in Alaska, especially the Norween and Fairbanks. Shout out to them. It's there as a book if you want to get it out for the library as well. Support the libraries. That's very that's very cool. I'm excited. I spent a lot of time as a kid at the old uh, Nolween yeah. Library there. So, yeah. All right. Well, James uh, Bartlett, uh, author of the book, The Alaskan Blonde. You can find him at thealaskanblonde.com, your local bookstore, Amazon. And has anybody done the audiobook yet? It's being done now. I would say, because yeah, I, yeah. I know a guy who's an audiobook narrator if you need one. So yeah. anyway, it's good to see you, James. Thank you so much. Thank we appreciate so much. it. Hold the line. Folks, we're out of time. Tomorrow is Tuesday. That means deep dive with Alaskans for Sustainable Budgets. Brad Keithley. Also, Chris Story comes in, author of uh, the book, The Backyard Millionaire, and more. He'll be joining us. Uh, thanks for being part of it today. Common Sense, Liberty Base, Free Thinking Radio. Be kind. Love one another. Live well. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great day. All right, James, I thought I'd give you one final bite at the apple because this has been fun. I really enjoyed this. Oh, thank, uh, you. Um, thank you. I love this whole idea. Uh, you know, uh, again, getting these stories out of Alaska. To me, it's fascinating. Uh, I'm in the middle of actually putting together a podcast that is uh, Alaskan crime. Uh, specifically. Oh, excellent. And excellent. so uh, I'd love to have you back for an interview for sure, that definitely. and to talk definitely. about that. But it's uh, it, it's it is a fascinating it's a fascinating piece of history. And, and those kind of stories, I don't know why we're fascinated with the crime, but it is a fascinating to just, you know, look into the mind of that. And it's it's always been part of our stories. I mean, it's always been part of this. It, maybe it's parables. Maybe it's a learning lesson. I don't know what it is. Yeah, I mean, it's always it, it's the stories around. If you think about it, go way, way back at the stories that would be told around the campfire before we even had language, they would a lot of them were warnings. They were warning stories about being careful or don't go into the dark or be careful of the stranger, you know. And I, and I think that a lot of the true crime um, interest today is it's something that we can touch but without touching it. Do you know what I mean? We can get right. close to it, right? But, but, but we don't touch it. Um, and especially we live in an age where more or less we figure that crimes are nearly always solved. And we, we like to live in an age where we like the security of something being solved. It, it doesn't make sense to us when a crime is unsolved, right. especially murder, because right. then you think, wait a minute, but I could be murdered. Right. I could be murdered. I, I thought, you know, we have the technology now. And as you know very well, you know, DNA and fingerprints and that kind of thing, that doesn't, that's not 100% guaranteed, you know, because we've, you know, we've watched CSI for 25 years where it does seem guaranteed. Right. More or less. right. That's not the case at all. You right. know, th- this case was 70 years ago. You know, they had fingerprints, they had bloody fingerprints, lots of them. All they could do was tell you a blood group 
That's right. all they could do at the time. Right. You know, exactly. that, that doesn't really help. And who, who were the blood groups? Cecil and Diane's blood group, which is exactly what they said. Yeah. He was dead. He was dead in the bed and she'd been beaten up. You know, yeah. of course there was blood on the, you know, so the fingerprints didn't help. You know, they couldn't find the gun. And if they didn't find the gun, how are they really going to prove it unless someone confesses? And of course, nobody did. Right. You know, she she always stuck to her story that two men broke in. Yeah. You know, she always stuck to that right to the end that two men had broken in. I think it's interesting that you say, you know, this is where that uh, you can touch it, but it can't touch you. You know, it's like people wanting to see wrongs righted. And that's part of that fascination. My wife always comments whenever she's watching something, you know, some documentary or, or yeah. something on true crime where she's like, I hate it when it's not solved at the end. And I'm like, yeah, because it feels now, now you feel the fear of it, right? If they catch the guy and they process, you know, right. they, they then that, then justice is served. But when you get a story where it's still unknown, then mm. people are like, Ooh, it's unsettling, but it's kind of like one of those, it's like kind of like one of those thrill things. Why do we go to watch scary movies to be scared? It's yeah. a, it's human nature in a, in a lot of ways. And it's often the way that people who like true crime don't really read mystery books because mystery books nearly always get solved in their fiction. They like to see the real ones get solved or not solved. And usually a lot of mystery readers, at least that I found, are not really too interested in true crime. Right. Because they don't want to go as far as reading the stuff that really happened. Right. It's the real. You know, it, that's kind of me. I'm like, I'm more the mystery guy. My wife is. And I right. asked her, I said, why do you, why do you, you know what? She goes, well, she goes, I find it fascinating to see inside the mind of right. somebody who's like that. Not that I want to be that. Not She goes, but it's no, fascinating no, no. to see inside that. And I could see some of that allure for sure. Um, you know, and that's why I said that's why I started to put this together for my own thing, because to me, the history portion of it is interesting. And then to mm. see what happened. So this is this is a fascinating journey for sure. Yeah. And, and the good thing about hist historical stuff is, is that you usually have to dig it out. Uh, you and and plus also newspapers back in the day, they tended to put you know people's full names and addresses, and other specific details. I mean, even you know if you think of the thirties, forties, and fifties of the newspapers, you know they would show dead bodies under blankets. They would show dead bodies in the street. You know they would like right. in Diane Wells's case, you know they they printed all her suicide notes. You know that kind of stuff doesn't happen now. Right. But they used to do it then, and that's really. That's really good material for research when you can find that kind of thing. Because, you know, when I was researching this book, I was looking for, you know, where's the address of the house that they live? Does it still exist now? I want to go and see the outside of the house, you know, that kind of thing. And in the old newspaper reporting, they would usually put that. Right. You're not allowed to do that now. Right. John you know, Smith and, of 123 Main Street. Right. Exactly. It really did. Yeah. yeah. I mean, whereas, you know, and, and it's it's the same principle as, you know, give, giving full names, you know, that we know a lot of famous killers by their full names first middle, right. and last because you know legally you have to put their full name because if you put a shortened version of the name and someone who's got that name gets a death threat right they sue the newspaper and say how dare you print my name right no you printed my name and they're like well it's not you it's not you we didn't mean you it doesn't matter it had my name in it and someone came around and said did you kill that guy your name was in the paper Right. So, you know, you have th everyone has three names. Right. All killers you know, have three names. Right. Exactly. They have three names. And yeah. Of course, they don't go around introducing themselves like that. But that's how the newspaper has to put them. So and, and like I say, you know, 100 years ago or 50 years ago, we didn't solve crime so easily, which makes it interesting and, and makes it interesting now for us who do have the ability to go on the Internet and dive into ancestry and, and look in old archives and 
try and get an idea of what happened because that's that's all I did. I took all the available evidence. I took the official files. I didn't I spoke to people who were there. I found out there were some elements that weren't included then because it was 70 years ago that we would now consider to be important. And that was how I came up with what I thought had happened at the end. And and the revelation isn't it's not a revelation at the end. It wasn't like a UFO or some elaborate conspiracy that happened. It was a pretty standard thing. And that was why I thought this could happen today. Yeah. This could happen today in, in the same way. That was the thing that really struck me was that I thought if if it came out that a, a an attractive young blonde with a middle-aged rich husband, you know, had been having an affair with a black guy today, the same thing would happen like it did in this case. It, it, the only difference would be people would be using Twitter and Instagram right. rather than the newspapers. Yeah, there'd be a court of public opinion would be a whole lot different. Exactly yeah, the yeah, same. Exactly, it would just be a yeah. lot quicker. Yeah, the, exactly. the, the same opinions, the same judgments, the same uh, little insidious comments and the, the same sort of sly racism would still happen today, and which was a pity because I, you would think we would be better. But it's, it's a human nature thing to an extent. Yeah. Um, and plus, you know, we... We like crimes to be solved. And, you know, you use the Occam's razor. You think, well, what's the obvious, most likely solution of this? Right. And, you know, because in this case, people thought, you know, it was a hit man. It was a hit. It was a professional hit. It was the mafia. People told me that. And I was like, okay. And I looked into it. That was never in any of the files. And I said, okay, well, why, why would the mafia be in Fairbanks in the 50s? Right. What, what was there there for them? They were in Anchorage for sure because that's a big city, you know, but – if it was drugs, you could just take drugs in on the airplane right. in those days. Yeah. It, it was really easy to do. Why would they be pushing so far into Fairbanks, so far into the interior? What what was the huge thing that they were going to get doing that and and that they were going to kill somebody for that? And plus, you know, if you're going to kill a guy like that, this is Alaska again. Catch him while he's out driving 20 miles out of town. Right. Shoot him in his car, leave him there. You don't go into his apartment in the middle of the night and shoot him. It's a fascinating story. You know, if you're story. professional, for example, you know? Yeah. No, that's a, it's a fascinating story. I'm I'm looking forward to reading the book, and I'm like I said, I hope that you continue to explore the Alaskan angle on that. James Bartlett, our guest, again, author of the book, The Alaskan Blonde. You can find him at thealaskanblonde.com. Uh, James, thanks for thanks for being part of it today. This is this no, you're, is a, you're welcome. Thanks for asking me. Yeah, it's a very very fun very fun thing. So I appreciate it. Uh, we will uh, we'll talk to you again in the future. Thank you. Good, I hope so. Thank you. All right, folks, we are out of time for today. We got more coming up uh, tomorrow. Thanks for being part of it with us. We appreciate it. Uh, we got to go. Things to see, people to people to see, things to do. That would have been weird. All right. Have a great day, my friends. The Michael Duke Show. Common sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Like and share, like and follow, subscribe, do all that stuff. We will see you tomorrow. Have a great day.
We've shed our terrestrial radio skin, and now we are slimy lizard internet people. It's the Michael Duke Show. 